Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Joshua chapter 8. If you're using these black Bibles and we've got them scattered underneath the seats throughout the sanctuary, uh, you'll find Joshua chapter 8 on page 172. In July of 1961, the Green Bay Packers football team gathered together for their first day of training camp. Uh, Just months before, the team had suffered a devastating loss as they blew a lead late in the fourth quarter to the Philadelphia Eagles, losing the NFL championship. And going into this new season, the Packers naturally were eager to improve and to take their game to the next level, uh, figuring out all the details and all the techniques and all the things that they needed to put in place so that this time they could go to the distance and win it all. And so you can imagine, in the wake of their failure and in their eager anticipation to succeed this time around, the players entered training camp ready and eager to hear wisdom dispensed from a coach who was quickly becoming recognized as one of the best, Vince Lombardi. And one day, Lombardi walked into training camp, and he gathered the players around them, around him. And you know what he said? You know the the wisdom that he dropped on them? He looked at his players holding a pigskin in his right hand, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Wow. And then as training camp went on, Lombardi made his players review how to block and how to tackle and All these things that all these professional players knew how to do, he was making them do these things over and over again. Uh, They opened up the playbook and they started on page one. He, He was having them go over everything again, taking them back to the basics of football. And six months later, the Green Bay Packers found themselves again playing for another championship. And they blew out the New York Giants 37 to zero. What the team needed that season, evidently, what they needed to move forward was to go back, back, back to the basics, because without the fundamentals of the game being embedded in your mind, you will not be able to move forward. Now, that principle applies in many areas of life, doesn't it? If you're a musician, there are certain basic fundamental things that need to be ingrained in what you do. If you're struggling with your golf game, it's often because you've drifted uh, into bad habits and you've drifted away from the the fundamentals of the mechanics of swinging a driver. Uh, With any skill, there are core things, there are foundational principles that have to be put in place, and and sometimes they need to be reviewed and, and practiced to help you to grow because you never truly move on from the basics, from those foundations. The same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Last week, we began a conversation about how a Christian is to respond in the wake of spiritual failure. There may be some of you in this room right now. You're dealing with the fallout from a significant spiritual collapse. You have fallen into sin, and you are wondering, how do I get back on track with the Lord? You feel ashamed and paralyzed and and maybe even afraid, and you just do not know how to move forward. Joshua chapter 8 teaches us something about how to move forward in the wake of spiritual failure. We saw uh, a couple of weeks ago in chapter 7 
that the people of Israel sinned. They broke faith with God. That language, broke faith, uh, that's the kind of language of, that's used of one who is in adultery. Uh, the people spiritually betrayed the God with whom they were in covenant relationship with. Uh, the book of Joshua began well with Israel triumphantly entering the land that God had promised them, the land of Canaan. You can see on the, on the map there uh, uh, their, their progress up until this point. Uh, God had miraculously parted the Jordan River, allowing Israel to cross over and enter the land on dry ground. Uh, shortly afterward, Israel faced their first major battle in Canaan against the mighty walled city of Jericho. Of course, it wasn't much of a fight, was it? Uh, through His power, God brought the walls down in an instant, allowing Israel to easily march in and win the battle. But it was in Jericho, though, that the problems began. God had told Israel not only to destroy the city, uh, but to destroy all of the plunder as a graphic picture of the completeness of God's judgment on the evil Canaanite peoples. And also, uh, it was seen as, as a picture of holiness and separation because Israel was God's people and they should have nothing to do with the evil of the Canaanites. But an Israelite soldier named Achan disregarded God's Word, and he greedily took some of that plunder, and all of Israel is implicated with him. And what's more, there was a, a general atmosphere of spiritual apathy that seemed to have settled over the whole community of Israel as they believed that victory over the next Canaanite city, Ai, would hinge on military might and numbers as they believed that since Ai was smaller and weaker than Jericho, they could easily take it. And yet, what they didn't realize is that God had withdrawn His help and blessing from Israel because of Achan's sin. And so, when Israel goes to battle against Ai, guess what happens? Little old Ai routs Israel. Because ultimately, success in Israel's mission does not hinge on their might, their power, or their skill in battle. Success has to do with the Lord's help and strength as Israel is faithful and following God and His Word. God makes it clear to Joshua that unless Israel repents and deals with this sin, He will not go forward with Israel. And that's when Joshua and all of Israel learn a very important lesson. That sin brings separation between God and man, and that the soul that sins must die. And so Achan is stoned in the valley of Achor, his body buried under a pile of rocks as a solemn reminder that the wages of sin is death. But while in chapter 7 we see God's justice towards sinners who deserve it, in chapter 8 we see God's grace towards sinners who don't deserve it. Yes, Israel had failed. But God does not cast aside His people. Uh, though they were faithless, God remained faithful. And the Lord reaffirms Joshua as Israel's leader. And this time, God goes into battle with Israel against Ai and gives Israel an overwhelming victory over their enemies. That's where we left off last week. And we come now to verse 30 in chapter 8, and we witness something unexpected. You would think that Israel, during a time of war would take advantage of their momentum and they would move on to the next city to continue the battle. That would be the wise thing to do militarily. In fact, 
if you skip ahead a little bit into chapter 9, we get the alarming news that a coalition of Canaanite kings and armies are massing together, joining forces to prepare for Israel's advance. And so it would make sense for Israel to strike now, strike hard, and strike fast. But in verses 30 through 35, we find Israel in an odd place doing a strange thing that seems bizarre in the middle of a massive military campaign. The war is essentially put on pause because the most important thing for Israel is not military strength and victory, but spiritual strength and victory. And so we find in our text today, not a battle between two armies, but a covenant-renewing ceremony between Israel and God as Israel rededicates and recommits themselves to the Lord. Because in the wake of spiritual failure, the way to go forward is to go back, back to the basics, to reaffirm and re-embrace those core foundational truths of what it means for God to be our God and for we to be God's people. So let's go back to the basics together. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect Word of our great and glorious God. We are in Joshua chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 30 and read on down through the end of the chapter. The Holy Spirit says, At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all of the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your inspired word, as we meditate on it together as a congregation, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text for us, that we might see and perceive what you have to say to Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning through this word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God, in these five short verses, is bringing us back to basics, back to the fundamentals of what it means to be God's people. And in the wake of spiritual failure, as we wonder how we're to move forward with God, we're given four very basic yet very important things for God's people to joyfully remember and receive and embrace. Um, and, and, the, and the first thing is the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of God's grace. There it is right there. Um, text says… Well, actually, before I read that, there's a very insightful comment from, um, from Dale R- Ralph Davies, Davis in his commentary on Joshua, and, and he says that uh, this section gives us a literary jolt. 
he writes that we have been accustomed to reading a fairly continuous narrative of strategies and battles when suddenly the war movie is cut and we are left looking at the slide of a worship service. I think it's a helpful observation. In the wake of the battle of Ai, we suddenly find Israel in verse 30 at Mount Ebal, some 20 miles north of Ai. And Joshua here is not laying out battle strategies. He's not training his troops. He is building an altar. The emphasis is not combat. The emphasis is covenant. Now, let me go back to that map and, and get our bearings. There it is. I don't know how well you can see that. That's a little small. Um, so Jericho is down here, Jericho, AI. But where they, where they go is here to the valley of Shechem. And then this kind of blows it up a little bit. Um, down here, that's Shechem. And then you have Mount Ebal on one side. You have Mount, Mount Gerizim on the other side. You've got half the tribes of Israel in front of Mount Ebal. And then you've got the other half in front of Mount Gerizim. So we're in the valley of, of Shechem. The town of Shechem is there. And the reason that they have come to this place is not random. Uh, Forty years prior, Moses had told them that after God had brought them into the promised land, that they would come here to this place. Now, Shechem had incredible historical significance for Israel. Do you, do you know the first time we are introduced to Shechem? Do you remember when? Uh, we are first introduced to Shechem way back in Genesis chapter 12. That's the pivotal chapter where God calls the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, to forsake his old gods and his old land and follow the one true God who leads him into Canaan, and he leads Abram to Shechem. And it is in Shechem where God promises Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. So this is a huge moment for Israel, for Abraham's offspring as they, hundreds of years later, find themselves standing exactly where Abraham stood and, and where Abraham worshipped and trusted in the promises of God, and now they are here. Now, now again, we have this great literary jolt in chapter 8. One verse prior, in, in verse 29, in, in the aftermath of the battle of Ai, you've got the evil king of Ai, he's executed, his corpse is hung up on a tree, and, and when that body was taken down, it was buried under a heap of stones. I know that's gruesome. It's not pleasant reading, but it was a graphic illustration of the curse of death and judgment that comes to the sinner. So in verse 29, the king of Ai is hung on a tree, while in verse 30, we find Israel in the valley of Shechem in celebration. And we should ask why. Why is the king of Ai dead under a pile of rocks and why is Israel still breathing? Well, God tells you why. He tells Israel why in Deuteronomy chapter 9. God says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, 
and to Jacob. So God really wants every single Israelite standing there in the valley of Shechem to get this truth deep down in their hearts that, yes, the land that they are standing on has been given to them by God, but not because they are righteous and good and so they deserve it. They aren't and they don't. Because, like the king of Ai, every single Israelite has sinned. And the only reason then that they aren't buried under a pile of rocks with the king of Ai is because of God's grace. I hope you understand this. I hope you know that there is not a single person who has ever lived, besides Jesus, who has not sinned against God and deserves God's wrath. No one in the end who is judged by God is going to be able to raise a legitimate complaint against God because that wrath was totally undeserved. And no one in the end is saved by God uh, who will be able to legitimately boast about their salvation because their salvation is totally undeserved and comes solely through God's grace. In Deuteronomy 7, God says to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other peoples that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. What a beautiful verse. So, we we see that it's not because Israel is righteous, Deuteronomy 9. It's not because they were a numerous, mighty people, Deuteronomy 7. There's nothing special about Israel in and of themselves. Read the whole Old Testament and you'll see that. God simply chose to graciously set His special electing love on Israel for His purposes. God never chooses to bless anyone because they deserve it. Instead, the foundation of our relationship with God is His grace. And as Israel stands alive and well in the valley of Shechem, in the very heart of the land that God has promised them, while the king of Ai lies under a pile of rocks… They know that they are there exclusively due to God's faithfulness to keep His promises and because of His grace towards undeserving sinners. Recognizing God's grace is where you and I need to begin in the aftermath of a spiritual failure. Sometimes we don't begin there. We sometimes feel like we've got to earn our way back into God's favor, uh, jumping through a bunch of hoops all the while wondering if, if it's good enough. But we are never to come back to God showing Him our resume and ticking off all the reasons why He should take us back. Instead, as we wonder how to get back on track with the Lord, we need to first get back to that basic fundamental truth that just as our relationship with God began by receiving and relying on His grace, the way back to God also is by receiving and relying on His grace. King David realized this years later when he prayed in Psalm 86, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. David here in this prayer is banking his hopes on the promises of a God who pledges to forgive all who call on His name and that He will give grace to those who plead for it. Because Fellowship with God comes through the grace of God. But how does that happen? How how can God just forgive my sins and act like they never happen? Well, that leads to my second observation, and that's the necessity of God's sacrifice. The necessity of God's sacrifice. In verse 31, 
Joshua builds an altar, and they sacrifice burnt offerings to God on it. And notice the text says that this is to be done on an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an, an iron tool. It's very interesting. What's the point of that? Why is that a problem to, to use an iron tool? We get a little bit more insight in Exodus chapter 20, verse 25, where God says, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Hewn stones or, or dressed stones were used by the pagan Canaanites to build their altars. They used stones of the highest quality. Uh, they were very costly. They were very aesthetically pleasing. And God's command here seems to have Israel go in the exact opposite direction from pagan Canaanite worship. And an aesthetically pleasing stone indeed could end up being a tribute to human craftsmanship, which would distract attention from God. And of course, the purpose of worship isn't to be dazzled by human craftsmanship and arts. The purpose of worship is to be dazzled by God, to be dazzled by God's beauty and God's grandeur. And God knows how easy it is for our attention to be diverted by counterfeit treasure. We're like a little child who, whose mom says, look at that incredible rainbow. And we are totally engrossed with looking at a pile of dirt with a couple of bugs in it. Was not Achan himself in chapter 7 dazzled by the plunder of Jericho, the shiny gold bar, and the beautiful cloak from Shinar? The whole problem with the sin of chapter 7 was being entranced by a wrong treasure. And so God says, build an altar that does not have the imprint of man, that does not declare how good and clever man is. God wants an altar that does not commemorate anything to do with man except for his sin and his need for forgiveness. And they offered on this altar burnt offerings. Why? Again, this is the basics. This is the fundamentals. This is Christianity 101, where we are reminded of a truth we sometimes take for granted, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And in the Old Testament, an animal was taken and slain, and its blood was shed, and the body of that animal was completely consumed. And the sacrificial animal would represent sinners. Sin brought death. Israel knew that well enough because of what happened to Achan and what happened to the king of Ai. And if the penalty for sin is death, and if you've sinned, guess what that means? Somebody's got to die. There's got to be death or else injustice for your crimes against God reigns. And that won't do. God can't just show grace at the expense of justice because God is a God of justice. And we all have an innate sense that justice is necessary. It's why we get angry when a criminal gets away unpunished. Uh, we are typically big proponents of justice as long as it's happening to other people. But the Scripture says justice needs to happen to every sinner who breaks God's law. And so, according to Joshua 7... All of Israel broke faith with God, not just Achan, but everyone. And so, if the rest of Israel is not going to end up like Achan, they need a substitute to die in their place. 
And the sacrifice of these animals highlights the gravity of the situation. In spite of the victory at Ai, still all is not well. Still all is not right. And things really won't be right until they're right with God. And as the throat of that lamb is slit and that sacrificial animal was totally consumed, the sinner is in that moment recognizing in his heart that, Lord, you have been in the right and I have been in the wrong. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Now, I don't know how many animals were offered up that day, but you can imagine that day, just the constant smoke going up to heaven from Mount Ebal. And you have men and women and boys and girls looking at that smoldering flesh, the smells entering their, their nostrils, the wind scattering the ashes, and they're just standing there, and they're just watching that, and they shudder, thinking, that should be me. That, that should be me. I should be consumed. That, that is what I deserve for what I've done. But God considered my sins as transferred to that lamb. And so now that lamb is consumed and not me. I get to walk away alive and free. Praise God. Praise God. This is about as foundational as you can get in regards to what it means to be a part of the people of God. That God is in the right, that we have been in the wrong, but that my sin is not the end of the story. There is a sacrifice. There is forgiveness. God is a God of justice, and He is also a God of mercy. And He can do justice towards my sin and give me mercy at the same time because of the sacrifice. Now, of course, the problem Israel faced is that they kept on sinning a lot. And so they had to keep on sacrificing animals a lot of them, because those animals were not the full and final solution to sin. The final solution would come, would not come, until one glorious day, centuries later, when a man called John was standing on the banks of the Jordan River, he saw another man approaching him, and John pointed to that man, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that man Jesus Christ became the perfect lamb, dying as a substitute for sinners, suffering the torments of God's holy justice towards sinners, so that whoever receives that man as his substitute would be saved from all of their sins, past, present, future, with no more sacrifice needed because Jesus paid the entire price for sins. Jesus paid it all. The book of Hebrews celebrates this in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a glorious verse that is. Remembering that, remembering that is, is a crucial step in getting back on track with God after we fail. If we forget that there has been a perfect sacrifice made for our sins, then we're going to fall into fear 
and despair, and we're going to be spiritually paralyzed, we're going to be unable to move forward with God, or uh, we'll fall into the trap of trying to atone for our own sins by our own good deeds, and you know that's a dead end also, because there is nothing that you can do that is sufficient to deal with your sins. You can never be good enough. And so you're going to end up in frustration and futility, and you're going to throw in the towel. That's not the way to get back on track with God. Your right standing with God doesn't have to do with your hard work and your efforts. It has everything to do with the work of Christ and His perfect sacrifice for you. And it's on the basis of His sacrifice that we, in the wake of spiritual failure, we can claim the glorious promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where we are told if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God for that. So we have here the, uh, the sufficiency of God's grace. We see here the necessity of God's sacrifice. But also, this text reminds us of the priority of God's joy, the priority of God's joy. Did you notice in verse 31 that it's not just the burnt offering that is to be given? It says they offered burnt offerings, but there's another kind of offering as well. It's the peace offering. Now, the purpose of the peace offering is different than the other offering. The purpose of this offering is, is, is not actually to, to make peace with God or to appease God. That's what the prior sacrifice did. Uh, the, the, it was the dealing with sin through the slain substitute. That's what brings peace with God. But the, what the peace offering is doing is not making peace as much as it is celebrating the peace and, and, and enjoying the fellowship that now exists between God and man. It, it's a thanksgiving celebration, so to speak. And with this offering, the peace offering, unlike the, the first one, the entire animal is not consumed, just a part of it. You know what you did with the rest of it? You ate it. You, you ate it. So the, the peace offering was a celebratory feast, celebrating the fact that peace, or shalom, as the Hebrew puts it, has come. And that, that Hebrew word, shalom, doesn't just, just mean peace in the sense that there's, a, there's an absence of conflict. The shalom actually has more to do with a relational wholeness a sense of completeness and well-being where all is well in your soul between you and God. Uh, this, this activity here, this peace offering, is really meant to be seen as having a meal with God. A meal with God. Because there is something about eating and drinking together. There is something about breaking bread together that signifies unity and oneness. You know, to, to refuse someone at your table speaks of hostility, doesn't it? I'm not even going to eat with that person. But here, the people are breaking bread in the presence of God with God because all is well between them and God. And I do want to emphasize that this is not merely to be a solemn feast, but it is meant to be celebratory and joyous. I know that because of what Moses said to the people. He said in Deuteronomy 27, when you get to the promised land and you get to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, he says, you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. 
Don't miss that. Joy is not optional. That's a command. Let let that sink in. God commands joy. Contrary to what some people believe about God, that He's some stuffy, frustrated, grumpy old man, and that's why so many Christians are stuffy and frustrated and grumpy. That makes sense because their view of God is that way. God is the happiest person in the universe. That's probably shocking to someone here. I've never heard anyone say anything like that before. It's true. God is the happiest person in the universe. Doesn't mean that He doesn't get angry at evil, but but His feelings about evil don't steal His joy. And part of getting back on track with God means learning how to enjoy God. I love question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If you have zero interest in being happy, pick another religion. Be a Buddhist. Because the end goal of Buddhism is the elimination of all desire including joy. Probably there are some Buddhists, especially American ones, who don't even realize that. That's the end goal. And 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 here, with the peace offering and and the rejoicing, the enjoyment of food is meant to point us to the enjoyment of God. It's why God gave you taste buds. God didn't have to give you taste buds. God could just had all food taste plain, or he could have had you absorb nutrients through the air. But he deems it that you eat, and and he deems at least some of what you eat is very good. Probably was all good before the fall. Sanctified taste buds. (laughs) That was not in my notes. And that's that's why it's always dangerous to get off a script, kids. Um, God gave us taste buds to teach us something about God so that we might understand what Scripture means when it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. One of the reasons you sin and one of the reasons I sin is because we're not enjoying God as much as we can or should. Again, if Achan had enjoyed God more, if Achan had relied on Him more for satisfaction and delight, that gold bar and that fancy cloak would have looked like trinkets to him compared to God and what he has in God. Later on in this passage, Joshua will read, all, read to all the people the blessings and the curses that are found in the law of Moses, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Those are found in, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. We won't have time to go into all that today. Um, In Deuteronomy 28, Moses says the people ultimately suffer, uh, the the people uh, ultimately suffer the consequences of sin because, he gives the answer, this is very interesting, uh, Deuteronomy 28, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. That's why people ultimately suffer or fall into sin and suffer the consequences for it. 
because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. In other words, you may have served the Lord outwardly, and you're going through the motions, but it's not in your heart. You're saying prayers, and you're giving up offerings, and you're doing all kinds of religious things. You're doing all those things. You look good on the outside, Achan, but in your heart, you've got no joy in God. You think God is stingy. You think God is boring. You think God is holding out on you, and you think money and a fancy coat is better, or you think movies are better, or sports are better, or your girlfriend or boyfriend is better, or family life is better. And this, I think, is important for you to realize, you and I to realize, as we're getting back on track with God, <clears throat> that we fell away because of a lack of joy in God in our hearts. And you can only fake that for so long until major spiritual collapse becomes evident for everyone to see, as what happened with Achan. But Jesus came to bring a better joy than the trinkets of this world. He said in John chapter 15, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let that blow your mind. My joy be in you, this man who is the happiest man in the universe, and he's come so that kind of joy could be in you. Elsewhere, Jesus describes heaven as entering into the joy of our master. Now, of course, we need to be honest and say that in this life, while there is still indwelling sin in us, we're going to have to fight for joy. It is a tooth and claw battle, fighting for joy. And I fail that fight on a regular basis. I, I think the fight for joy is one of the hardest battles of the Christian life. I mean, yes, we have our own indwelling sin, but in addition, uh, we suffer hardships and trials and tribulations and health difficulties and relational tension and all kinds of things that threaten to steal our joy. But the Scriptures tell us the amazing truth that joy can actually coexist alongside hardship. It can actually coexist alongside sorrow. You're saying, demon, you're crazy. No, that's Bible. The Apostle Paul describes the Christian life as a life that is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so, in the wake of our sin, as we humbly return to the Lord, one of our prayers should be what David prayed. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of your salvation. We don't have a peace offering feast as Old Testament Israel did, but we do have a celebratory meal, don't we? Something that God has, has given us. It's called the Lord's Supper. We do it every month here at Harbin's where we come together and we eat the bread and we drink the cup to look back on the sacrifice of Christ, which brought peace between God and the sinner, and that is something that is worth celebrating. You know, the early church, they actually had a huge feast that revolved around the Lord's Supper. It wasn't little tiny pieces of crackers and, you know, little tiny things of juice. It was a big deal. It was a joyous occasion. Sometimes I wonder if we should do it that way here that meal doesn't just look back, but it looks forward to a final climactic feast at the end of the age and the fullness of the coming kingdom of God where we will eat and drink with Christ and 
all of his people as we prepare for an eternity in heaven with God in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. But the next observation about this text, another one of the basics has to do with the urgency of God's Word, the urgency of God's Word. This really, I think, is the primary focus of this section, above and beyond anything else. In verse 32, Joshua writes down a copy of the law of Moses in the presence of all the people. And then this dramatic moment comes where you have Joshua giving a verbal recitation of the law of God. Basically, he's reading the Bible to them. Now, now, as much of the Bible as they had at that time, they had the, the five books of Moses, they had the Torah, the law, and he's reading this to them. And by the way, uh, the, the two mountains on either side of the valley of Shechem, uh, I'm told that they form a natural amphitheater, so this is the perfect place to do a public reading like this. God's got it all figured out, got all the pieces in place. And who is present at this reading? Who's there? This is really important. Everyone. Verse 33 says, all Israel. And he says, sojourner as well as native born. Sojourner. In other words, not just Hebrew people, those genetically related to Abraham. The sojourner is there. Who's that? Those are outsiders. Those are people who were not Jewish, uh, but, but they had become part of Israel through faith and trust in God so that we, so that, so, that, so that people like Rahab would be there. Rahab, the Canaanite ex-prostitute that we met in chapter 2, she's there. So there is no race distinction here. The text says all Israel and describes all Israel as sojourners and native-born. Because to be a part of Israel is not ultimately about race distinctions, it's about theological distinctions. And Rahab is included in Israel, and who isn't there? Achan. Achan. Achan the Jew was cut off from the people. Rahab the Gentile is absorbed into the people. That's very important. And so we see here in the people of God a unity that transcends race, but, but also uh, transcends hierarchy and social status. You have here present, the text says, elders, officials, judges, they're there. They're all to be under the authority of God's Word. Nobody is left out. Who else is there? Verse 35 says, the entire assembly, the women too, and, and even the little children, They are all there, and the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's presence, a presence they had not enjoyed in in chapter 7 in the Battle of Ai Part 1, the Ark there is in the center, and what's more, Joshua is in the center of the gathering, reading the Scriptures, a beautiful picture of how the Word of God is to be at the very center of their lives. Remember, Achan sinned because he disregarded the Word of God. He exalted his desires and his preferences over what God said, and in the end, it led to his destruction. And the crucial element of getting back on track with the Lord in the wake of spiritual failure is getting the Word of God back to the center of your life, back to the center 
of your heart. Now, here in Joshua 8, particularly, you see that they're focusing on the blessings and the curses, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, detailing the blessings and benefits that come when you walk according to God's word and the consequences that come for disregarding the word. Because it's not enough to do outwardly religious things like sacrifices and prayers and external forms of worship. Achan had been doing those things. He had just received circumcision, the outward mark of being a part of God's people. He just ate the Passover, one of the most important holy days on the calendar, and yet those outward forms were not sufficient because he disregarded the word. He didn't care about the word. And today, there are, there are churchgoers who may sing and celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. They may take the Lord's Supper, and, and then they leave the church building, and they disregard God's Word and indulge in sin Monday through Saturday. And Joshua 8 is reminding us that we must never lose sight of the most basic fundamental foundation of what it means to be one of God's people. It's time to get back to the basics. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. This is God's Word. And if we set this aside, if it is collecting dust, if we think that the culture and movies and music and political talk radio and our own feelings have a better word to say, or if we simply have better things to do Monday through Saturday than to read, absorb, heed, meditate on, memorize, and live by this, then it's all over. It, that, that's the ball game, and we've lost. And Joshua, reading the Word of God to all of these people, reading the blessings and the, the curses, is bringing the people to a point of crisis, bringing the people to a crucial point. Joshua isn't preaching for entertainment. He is preaching for a decision. And he is essentially saying, choose this day whom you will serve. And how you respond to God's Word defines that choice. Your response to His Word is the most crucial issue of your life. And this is true for everybody. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I am really glad that you're here. You're always welcome to join us, and I hope you'll come back. But simply being here will not in the long run do anything for you. Achan was he, was, he was there. He was among the people of Israel, and that in the end did not save him because Achan disregarded the word. He, he did not believe in it. He did not trust it. He cast it aside. And so it is with you today. What you need more than anything else is to hear and trust and believe the word of the gospel the good news which says that you are a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior, and receiving His grace by trusting in His sacrifice and seeking Him as your ultimate joy and treasure is the way to life now and for eternity. Romans chapter 1 says that the gospel word is the power of God for salvation, but not for everyone for everyone who believes. If you're here this morning as a Christian, and perhaps you're realizing that you have been drifting spiritually, the way forward 
is to go back. Go back to the basics. Get back to this word. Because your response to this word is the most crucial issue of your life. It's more important than where you live. It's more important than the person you're uh, going to marry. It, it's more important than the career you follow. It's more important than how much money you make. It's more in- important than whether or not you're physically healthy or if life is turning out according to your preferences or whether or not people like you and, and, and you're popular. It's more important than any other thing that this world tells you is important because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is in His word where you will be reminded of all those basics. That's that's where you'll find all the fundamentals of the faith, where you'll be dazzled by His amazing grace, which not only saves you, but keeps you, because He who began a good work in you will complete it, because when we are faithless, He is faithful. You won't know that unless you're in this book. It is in His Word where you will see again the sacrifice that atones for all of your sins, including the ones you just committed, and that led your heart astray in the first place. And we are reminded that that sacrifice, that blood, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it is in this Word, in this Word, where you will learn how to enjoy and delight in God again, weaning yourself off of the trinkets of this world and seeing and savoring Jesus for the treasure that He is as you rediscover Him and His precepts in His Word. The psalmist also says, I rejoice in your Word like one who discovers a great treasure. So, unbelieving friend, hear the Word. Believing friend, heed the Word. Let, let, let none of us overcomplicate or overthink this. To experience life in Christ and victory over sin and joy in Him, let's get back to the fundamentals. Let's get back to the basics. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that in your miraculous power that you will somehow take this word preached by this flawed and imperfect preacher and that you will do something wonderful and beautiful in the hearts of my friends here this morning. Because my hope is not in my ability to change lives. My hope is in the power of the word to do that. And so, I pray that the Word that has been preached and read and heard and expounded on and meditated on will take root in the hearts of everyone in this room and bear much fruit. And thank You so much, Father, that even when we are faithless, You are always faithful. And at the end of the day, our life, our salvation, our eternity hinges not on our efforts, work, or strength, but in your efforts and in your strength and in your work and in your mighty hand that is strong enough to save us and to keep us and to hold us fast. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.